Matthew chapter 20. Sweet. Um, boy, we've been in Matthew for a while. I was thinking, wow, we're getting to 20. Still got, you know, a third to go almost. But as we come here to this, uh, this, this chapter, this is the final chapter of events before Jesus arrives outside of Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. So really the last eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew recount, uh, for the most part, the last the last week of, of Jesus' life and ministry prior to the cross and then what happened at the resurrection. And so this morning, um, we're going to start with this parable of laborers in the vineyard. But to get an understanding and the right explanation of this parable before you read it, you have to, you have to tie it to chapter 19 and where we were last week, the story of the rich young ruler, um, his going away at Jesus' challenge to give up his possessions uh, for the kingdom uh, you know, and we, we saw this, we saw this young man whose wealth stood in between this idol stood in between him and, and the grasping of e- eternal life. And it was then that Peter piped up and Peter said, we've left everything, you know, in comparison to this young guy who right now is walking away from you, Jesus, we've left everything for you and your kingdom. What reward will we have? And Jesus told Peter He told the 12, he answered the 12. He said, for you that have left everything for me and specifically for you 12, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus said this, and we saw it at the end of chapter 19, that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so Jesus gave this promise to the disciples, but it's a promise that's true to us in this sense too, that all who, who suffer loss for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the message of the gospel, uh, whether that be in regards to lands, property, relationships, you know, with parents or children or siblings, whether it's in regards with love or friendships, those who sacrifice for the kingdom, Jesus said, will be rewarded a hundredfold. But chapter 19 closed with this warning, and this is where this parable comes into play. Jesus said, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And so as we read this parable, we're going to try to interpret it uh, through that lens of what Jesus said, that warning to his disciples, many who are first shall be last and the last first. So let's check it out. Verse one of Matthew chapter 20 says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the master of the house saying, 
These last, work, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I chose? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So this, this whole parable really has to do with Peter's question regarding reward. You know, I, and I guess it, it deals directly with Peter's thoughts that can creep into our life. The same, the same thoughts that, that Peter thought, in a sense, that he was superior over someone else. You know, I've left everything and what will I, what will be my reward? I mean, if you compare me to the rich young ruler, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What will be our reward? We're the first. I mean, think about the young man. I speculated a little bit with the young man last week. I, I, I believe probably at some point in time, you got to think that he responded to Jesus after he walked away that day. I, I hope that and trust that. That maybe he came back. Maybe he came back at the 11th hour of his life. That's the beauty of the gospel. You never know that if at the 11th hour, someone will come back and come into the kingdom. And, Jesus, and, and so Peter asks, I mean, he's walked away. We've given up everything. What will be our reward? And so Jesus tells this parable to teach the disciples the truth about, about precedence in, in the kingdom of God. You know, we live in a, in a culture that gives great priority to those who come first. You know, gold medals and blue ribbons and all these things. You know, in the school, school system, in a lot of places, they're trying to, like, you know, eliminate those things. We're not going to keep score. We're going to hand out participation awards, which is like, thanks for coming out. And I always find things like that funny when you attempt not to keep score even with little kids, right? Because it's like, no, we're just having fun. Hey, by the way, what's the score? They know what the score is. They know who's winning. They know who's in first place, even if you're not keeping score. And, you know, you think about the workplace. Most, most workplaces award years of service. They give priority to those who have done more over those who have done less. You know, I want that position, and I get that position because I've been here longer than that person. And Peter's question to Jesus when he asked this really is, is implying those, those very same principles that we take in sport or we take in the workplace about seniority or supremacy. Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What will be our reward? And, and Jesus says, Peter, look, you're going to be rewarded a hundredfold. You are going to be rewarded, but let me correct you on any thought of superiority that creeps into your heart in the midst of me telling you that. Any thought of, of you being, you know, greater in precedence because the kingdom of God does not function by human scorekeeping. That's what this parable tells us. That the kingdom of God does not function by human scorekeeping and seniority like the workplace or the sports field. And so Jesus tells this parable. A master goes out. It's a crazy parable. It's kind of, you know, he goes out, he, he hires workers to work in his vineyard and they agree. It's for this amount. And everything's set in place and they go to work. But throughout the day, as we read, mid-morning, lunchtime, early afternoon, even down to the very last hour of the working day, 
the, the master goes out and finds idle men in the workplace and he offers them work and they go and they're faithful to the work that they've been given. And at the end of the day, when it's time to pay wages, the master begins with those who, start la who began last and uh, down to those who came early in the morning. And the shocking, shocking thing is, when you read this story, is that, that, that whether they worked one hour or whether they worked in the scorching heat laboring all day, everybody was paid the same. Now, I mean, just think about our world. <laughs> think about if you, that was the case in the workplace, right? If, uh, you know, what, imagine if that happened in your workplace. Maybe it's a, the pulp mill. <laughs> Maybe you work in some union environment, right? Where it's like, what? What? That's not fair. That goes against everything we, uh, you know, would want in the workplace. You think about what that would mean to an, an employer if they did that to their employees. It'd be a freaking nightmare. There's no other way to say it. They'd never do it again. And so this parable is teaching us just a simple truth that eternal reward in the kingdom of God, it's not like the workplace, in the kingdom of God, reward is not based on length of service. Yeah, but I did 30 years. It's not based on length of service. It's not based on, I would even say, the notoriety of service. So what is reward based on in the kingdom of God? Reward in the kingdom of God we see in this parable is based on faithfulness in the midst of service. Whether you work all day or whether you're employed to work for one hour, you're faithful to the master and you'll be rewarded. You're rewarded based on the opportunity given to an individual. You know, the workers who started at the beginning of the day and those who came at the last hour had one thing in common based on their reward. They were faithful to the task the master had given them. And you think about it. I think about somebody like Billy Graham, right? Preached the gospel to millions of people uh, over a lifetime then you compare him, I don't know, to what, what example do we want to pick? Maybe a little grandma who got saved and prays for her children and grandchildren, but she's a prayer warrior in a closet and no one sees it. Or compare the person who maybe pastors a church of thousands versus the faithful Sunday school teacher who just teaches little children uh, the word of God. See, what matters in the kingdom of God is that, that we make the most of the opportunity that God affords each one of us. And they're different. Maybe God calls you to lead an international ministry, right? As we see different people. Or maybe he calls you to disciple your children and that's the real task that Jesus gives you in regards to the kingdom, to train your children in the ways of the Lord. Whatever it is, the point is be faithful to the service God has given you. And Jesus' points, points, point to Peter was that the young man may have walked off now in a sense. And though it takes some time, when he does come to the kingdom, if he does come to the kingdom, his reward will be as great as yours as he, if he is faithful to the call that God has put upon his life. It's kind of a beautiful thing, isn't it? You know, so often in the kingdom of God, we look at others and we go, I wish. I wish my life was like that. I wish my influence was like that. I wish my ministry was like that. I wish God could give me influence for the kingdom like that, like that person. But the beauty of this parable for everyday Joes, like you and me, is this, is that 
We're not rewarded based on the privilege that's afforded us. We're rewarded based on our faithfulness to the, the call of God in our life. And those whose privilege seems less will not receive less if they're faithful. And those whose privilege is greater will not receive more if they're faithful. Be faithful to what God has called you. And, and the, the warning in all of that to me is this, is it, that it's ridiculous to really, when you think about it, to become proud of, of anything that God has done in us or through us or through our lives or through our families or through our church, you know, imagining that based on the opportunities that are afforded us that we'll receive greater reward. And so this is the warning to Peter. Yeah, Peter, you're going to sit on a throne. You're going to dwell, uh, judge one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But what I reward is faithfulness. What I reward is faithfulness. And so Jesus says, the first will be last. The first, sorry, the last will be first and the first last. And then in verse 17, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Ever since we were in Matthew chapter 16, that story of uh, Jesus and the disciples in Caesarea Philippi and Peter making his confession of faith to Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Ever since that, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been introducing, and Matthew's been recounting to us different times that Jesus was introducing the concept of the cross and preparing the disciples for all that would happen in Jerusalem. And, you know, if you just stop and you read these words, it's very clear that Jesus understood what was going to happen in Jerusalem. What lay before him at the hands of sinful men? You know, really, you, you read this and it's an incredible display of just his divine foreknowledge. He was not speculating about his future, not rolling the dice, not guessing, not wondering what was going to happen. No, he lays out the details for his disciples to understand. No, this is no vague prediction. It's not like the Canucks are going to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? This is like, saying in the first round, it's going to happen this way. In the second round, it's going to happen this way. In the third round, it's going to happen this way. And it's going to end in seven games. And they're going to, this is like the prediction. Look at all the detail that is in here. And you think about, about this prophecy, really, this prophetic word from Jesus, the, the probabilities against Jesus is just compounding with every detail that he adds. We say the chief priests, the scribes, they're going to condemn him to death. They're going to deliver me over to the Gentiles. They're, I'm going to be mocked, flogged, crucified, die, be raised from the dead. I mean, Jesus is laying it out now for his disciples with greater and greater detail as they move towards Jerusalem. And since the time that Jesus introduced the reality of his death in Matthew chapter 16 uh, to his disciples, Never once does he mention the cross without telling them the fact of the resurrection. I am going to die, but I will be raised from the dead three days later. See, Jesus had a clear vision of 
the darkness of death that hung over his life, but he had a clear vision of the light of the resurrection that would follow. And, you know, I think I've been challenging in my own life and ministry over probably the last 18 months to, to think about these words of Jesus. You know, when you talk about the cross, Jesus didn't separate the cross and the resurrection. When he talked about the cross, he then talked about the resurrection. And I think we would do well to make that our, our, our habit as well. Cross of Jesus Christ, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus shared with his disciples, there was, there was never a, any thought in his words, any inclination, any hint that he would ever turn away from God's plan. He was undeterred. Even though he knew everything that was coming, he set his face towards Jerusalem. I love that about Jesus. He set his face towards suffering. He, he was driven and compelled by his devotion to the will of the Father. He would cooperate with God's plan and purpose for his life, whatever it looked like. And so as they were traveling, Jesus pulled the disciples aside and he communicated these details to them. And I really think, I mean, this is, he wasn't doing this for himself. He's not like, you know, doing a huddle before the game to rah-rah before we go to Jerusalem. No, what's he doing? He's not trying to invoke the pity. No, he's, he's getting them ready to understand everything that's coming down the pipe for him. And it's there that Matthew tells us in verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. It kind of reminds me of the picture of the young man. Remember, he came running last week. He knelt before Jesus. She comes and she kneels before him asking for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom, has been, whom it has been prepared by my father. Strange account, right? It's James and John, their mother, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salmone, Salmon. Uh, and it, it demonstrates really the contrast. Look at the contrast of what's happening in the heart of the disciples versus what's happening in the heart of the Savior, Jesus. What filled their hearts and what filled his heart? Jesus is pressing on with resolve to Jerusalem. He's pressing on with focus to all that awaited him there as he approached the cross. He was thinking of the cross. He was thinking of the resurrection. And it was little more than a week away for him where we are in the gospel account. And the brothers, James and John, they were ambitious. Their, their hearts were thinking of their thrones in the kingdom of God. The two thrones of the twelve. Man, we better make sure that our two thrones out of the 12 thrones are right to the right and left of Jesus. Yeah, gotta love the picture. That's where they wanted it. And so, you know, they approached Jesus and I, I always just find this story amazing that they um, recruited mommy. Hey, mom. <laughs> recruited mommy to come, uh, you know, just suck up to Jesus. But, you know, you know, just kind of stewing on this this week, 
as, as often as we, I, I've always been harsh on the disciples in this story, but there's a positive side to this too, in a sense, because these two men, even though they were ambitious, I mean, if you're going to have ambition, you may as well have ambition towards the kingdom. You may as well have ambition for the kingdom. And in their ambition, it was evident that, that there was faith in Jesus. There was faith in the work that Jesus was doing. They believed he was coming into his kingdom. Even though he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead. The, those words, death and resurrection, like they didn't get it. They believed that he was coming into his kingdom. And so they approached him in faith and in ambition. And, you know, his words to them were mysterious. They were ambiguous. You know, the, 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 the cross, they were not grasping the fact that he was going to die. They believed he was coming into his kingdom. And so Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able to do it. Yeah, Jesus, we can do it. Whatever you got. They were sure they could endure any test for the kingdom. Um, and they meant, they meant well. They, they thought it. They believed it. They were willing to do whatever that meant. And, you know, in a sense, they were just as bold and honest as Peter is famous for, aren't they? Though everyone Jesus leaves you, I won't. Just before he departs in his infamous confession. These men meant it. They were being honest. Yeah, we'll do whatever, whatever it takes. But they weren't able. Like in a, in a week, they would be fleeing with the rest of the 12, uh, terrified at his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so what did Jesus do with these rash disciples. Well, he was patient. You know, he didn't get angry with them. I'd be angry. You know, you'd be angry. I think you'd be angry. Jesus in his tenderness said though, you, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And when they said, we're able, like just like children, really, you know, we can do it, Jesus. He didn't go, you know, that's impossible. He didn't, he didn't berate them and say, it's impossible that you go to the cross like I'm going to go to the cross. Like, what did he do? You know, he allowed them into fellowship. So you, you will. You will drink the cup that I drink. You will drink my cup. In other words, you will share in death and in resurrection, you will follow me. And, and you will consent to the one thing that in your flesh you would shrink back from. You know, James would be the first of the disciples to die, swift with a sword. John would be the last to die. We know that about him. He'd die of old age while in, the, while in exile on the island of Patmos. I love this promise of Jesus because it says, no, you will, you will drink my cup. I'll tell you something, hallelujah. When we die, we will rise again. That's what Jesus is saying. You will drink my cup. You will die and you will rise again. And they drank of his cup. John a little quicker than he planned. I mean, James a little quicker than they planned. John a lot later. You know, the green blade of the grass, the scripture says that our life is 
that it fades, that the sun scorches it, that the wind blows, that it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But there's that old hymn, the green blade rises again. And Jesus says, you'll drink of my cup. You will die and you will rise again. But in the midst of all of this, the, the 10 heard what was going on. Verse 24. When the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were ticked. Why? Man, because they got like one up to the right and the left of the king. I mean, they believed in the king too. They believed in the coming of the kingdom. They believed that Jesus was, that it was all just right there around the corner. Believed he was coming into his kingdom and they wanted their positions of importance too. Rivalry. You know, it's said that often the sins of others that make us the most indignant are a reflection of ourselves. You, you know, things that really tick us off in other people, we're like looking at the mirror. Doesn't that bug you? A copy of our sins and others. I just thought I was righteous. <laughs> and really, you know, often it's those things that bug us are a reflection of our own hearts. And that's why they were ticked. Because they saw themselves. They got, they got beat. And so Jesus called them to him. And he said in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, th I really think in, in many ways that uh, verse 28 is one of the themes of the whole gospel of Matthew. Christ's kingdom is the reversal of the fleshly, worldly order of things. It's upside down. I mean, what Jesus said is totally upside down to all that the disciples at this point were thinking and vocalizing. They thought that, you know, through ambition, they would get, you know, power and, and the dignity of sitting on a throne. Closeness to Jesus was going to get them the spot they wanted. And, and really, what we see here in these words of Jesus, that, that rank and order in the kingdom is the opposite as rank and order in the world. In worldly rule, it means you lord your position over those who would be deemed as your inferiors. As Trudeau's beloved friend Castro passed away. <laughs> Sorry, I got to take my fun shot there. <laughs> the perfect example of what Jesus is talking about, a man who used position and power to oppress people and to hurt people. A self-imposed dictator who is more of an oppressor, right, than a king. The kingdom of God is a reversal to all this, Jesus says. Rule does not mean sitting on a throne. The disciples had to learn that. They needed to learn what it meant to serve. Uh, serve, not master. You know, labor, not relax. Sacrifice, not indulge. See, being a servant for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom, is, is not only the path of greatness, but it is the task of those who are called to, called to greatness. Serve, not master. 
Labor, not relax. Sacrifice rather than indulge. Jesus says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the disciples, just like you and me, wanted positions of power. Not, not to do good to others. They wanted to be served rather than to serve. And Jesus said, no. No, 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 no. The, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I, I'm going to be raised again. And then what happens? They, they break into a, a conversation about asking for positions of power. And so Jesus took them back to the very purpose of his coming. He said, no, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom. And the pathway that God had planned for Jesus meant that he was going to experience suffering. He was going to die and be raised to life. And you know, for me, as I just think about this for us, the application is this. You know, don't argue with the Lord. Don't, don't argue and negotiate about your place of power or position. But instead, learn to serve wherever God's got you. Wherever he's got you. In your home, in your workplace, in your church. Make a decision. I'm going to serve the Lord right where God has me. I am going to work as if working for the Lord and not for men. Get ready for any place, you know, I would say. Get ready for any place the king would, would give you and then follow the pattern of Jesus, the son of man. So I'm going to give my life for the ransom of others in this situation, in this place, in this home, in this workplace, and in the kingdom of God. What we see is that serving does lead to power. Sacrifice does lead to position. That when you humble yourself, God does lift you up. When you deny yourself and you serve others, God does bless and bring his anointing and his power. And again, Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus' own statement. I would say a statement of what he thought the purpose of his life mission was for the kingdom of God as a son of God. And if we trust if we put the faith of our lives in his death and in his resurrection, then we have to imitate his life purpose. We have to imitate his sacrifice, his service. The cross really was a throne, right? The cross was a throne. And as we look at his life, what else should his servants be? But those who serve rather than are served those who give their lives as a ransom for others. And so we read in verse 29, it says, when, of, when out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. 
Jericho is just 25 kilometers from Jerusalem. Like in this whole pathway from Galilee and uh, to Jerusalem, they're there, man. They're like, they're on the threshold. They're a day's journey away from arriving. And that last week of Jesus' life really kicking in before the cross here. And the disciples, we, we read the story, the disciples are with him. You know, we get the scene. The crowd's following along. And as they're traveling, they begin to make their way out of Jericho. Lots happened in Jericho. The other gospels tell us. But as they traveled along, there's two blind men sitting roadside. And they hear that Jesus is coming. And they begin to cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy. And I don't know if it was a cry of faith, if it was a cry of just hope. But they were crying out. And Mark's gospel tells us, Matthew's gospel tells us that the crowd tried to silence them, rebuke them. And so these blind men just began to cry out more and more. And they, they probably thought, you know, I, I think the crowd probably thought Jesus too dignified or something like that to deal with these blind beggars that are roadside to stop and help these men. But they cried out more and more. And so with the beggars crying out, with the crowd trying to silence them, the scripture says something amazing. It's just like two little words. Jesus stopped. That's like pretty incredible. Because he is on direction to fulfill the father's mission. There's something that lays before him. He is about to ransom the world. The very, the very thing that all of history the story, the truth that it spins upon its axis point, the cross, is like a week away. And Jesus stops. He, he, he stops. Within a day's travel, he's going to suffer. He, he's, he's, he's about to go and suffer. He's about to go and purchase your pardon, man, to ransom you. And with him are the 12. With him are the men who are going to carry on his ministry they were men who in many ways, as, as we're seeing, even in the text this morning, they did not understand him. They did not understand his kingdom. They did not understand his purposes. They had not truly come to comprehend that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And so with the crowd pressing, Matthew tells us something beautiful. Jesus stopped. He stopped the whole procession, man. In a sense, you think about this, it's almost like the history of the entire world stops with Jesus stopping. I don't know if you know that, right? He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He holds all things together. I don't, I don't know, like I didn't search the scriptures, but I wonder if it tells us anywhere ever that Jesus ever stopped. My guess is not. My guess is not. But he stopped, and Jesus called and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And when they asked that, they, they touched the pity and the compassion of Jesus' heart. They, they touched the pity and compassion of Christ's heart to serve people, to ransom them. And in his pity, he touched their eyes. And immediately we, we read here that they recovered their sight and they followed him. I mean, imagine this, you know, first thing they see. What do they see when their eyes are open? They see the servant king. And they followed him. The compassion in the heart of Jesus led 
led to an action towards these, these two blind men. But in all of this, you ha- we, we have to see this because Christ is bringing a correction, not only to his disciples, but to you and me today. Correcting the false concept of those who would follow him. It was to correct their false idea of the kingdom and how the kingdom functions. The false idea of what power is. The false idea of what position is. The false idea of what it means to occupy a throne. Let my throne be on the right and left, Jesus. Jesus was a king, but he was more than a king. He was a servant king. A servant king. A servant king who was willing to stop the procession, who was willing to stop eternity in a sense. Willing to stop on the journey towards the cross to reach out and help two men who needed his touch. He stopped on the, on the road towards the cross and he healed two men. He, he, he took two wretches and he made them his treasure. <laughs> and that's Jesus. That's why we worship him. Because he takes wretches and he makes them his treasure. He, he, he stops for you and I to touch our lives and, and to serve us. That's Jesus, the servant king. And you know, what this text calls us to really this morning is this. It's just to follow that example. Let us follow him. When he touches your life, you get up like a blind man and you say, wow, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, even if it means a cross. I mean, even if it means whatever, I'm going to follow you. And the result will be in our lives, resurrection power. Resurrection life, you know, relies just beyond the place of suffering. I was thinking about this in my life. You know, I often wonder this. I don't know about you. I, I, in fact, I'm sure you wonder this. I don't think, man, if I'm in the spot, you know, where it's like life and death, and somebody puts me in the spot, and it's like, you choose Jesus, and you die. You deny him. You can live right now in this moment. And I think, man, God, I'm like afraid if that day ever comes, because I... Like, I just hope I won't shrink back from honoring your name in the midst of that. And, and I think of the disciples here when Jesus says, you'll share in my cup. What he was telling them in many ways was this. I am going to put my power in your life. And when the day comes, you will not shrink back from my name. I took hope in this text this week. You will not shrink back in that day. You will share in my cup because the resurrection life lies beyond the place of suffering. The resurrection life is in front of us when we give our lives for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't it true? His wounds have paid my ransom. And that is the pathway to greatness in the kingdom of God. To give our lives. To serve rather than to be served. And so, you know, I just encourage you this week, wherever God's got you, wherever he's placed you, your home, your workplace, your relationships, whatever, whatever it is. You know, for me, it's like coaching. It's my children. It's uh, little things, whatever. Whatever. 
You make a decision to serve, and God will honor faithfulness. 11th hour, we're all day in the scorching heat. He'll reward.